Hi, and welcome back to the Developmentor Podcast. I'm your host, Graninger Saul. Each episode, my goal is to bring you an interesting, career-focused interview with someone working in technology. I hope to show just how many different pieces go into building great tech beyond the actual tech itself. Today's guest is an entrepreneur, an academic, and a trailblazer in her field. She also is an incredibly generous mentor, having helped countless entrepreneurs and students launch their careers, including yours truly. Indeed, I first met today's guest a bit over 20 years ago in a small office on the campus of Syracuse University when I interviewed for a position at her natural language processing startup. Little did I know that job I thought I wasn't even qualified for at the time would become the cornerstone of my career. Please join me in welcoming to the show, Liz Liddy. Liz, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Liz, you know, it, this is truly an honor for me to have the chance to interview. So let's start things off by having you introduce yourself to our audience. Okay, great. Glad to. Glad to. So as you can tell, my name is Liz Liddy. I'm currently Dean of the iSchool. Full name is the School of Information Studies at Syracuse University. We are a, um, a growing school, although small compared to others on campus. We um, have great growth rate and great success. I'm very proud of the school. I come to this as um, Grant has suggested through natural language processing, which I can explain to you <laughs> as we go along. But um, I was a doctoral student here then um, when you weren't supposed to be hired by your own university that educated you, they agreed to hire me. And so I have been on the faculty for a good number of years now and started as faculty just teaching, then had an idea for a company, started the company and um, grew it to 50 people. Um, over time, I got a little bored with it because if you have a company and a product, you just kind of have to deliver that. We were very, very early in the field. So I left, the company's still going. I don't remember if Grant stayed after me or if he left when I did too. But um, yeah, company's still going and um, I've been engaged in natural language processing and machine learning for, for many years now and I'm thrilled to see how successful it's become. I first taught classes in which there might be five students when I taught NLP. We teach it here now, both at the undergrad and grad level and there are typically um, 30 students in each in long waiting lines. So it's been great to watch the field grow. Yeah, so wanted? no, that's fantastic. Uh, let's talk a little bit about NLP here, you know, because this is obviously a, a subdomain of, of artificial intelligence as, as the buzzword today. But, you know, this wasn't exactly on the tip of everyone's tongue back in the 1980s when, when you started on this. You know, what, what drew you into this in the first place? Mm, okay. Perhaps a bit of a long answer. My undergrad was in linguistics, um, and I was a I got my master's in library science here. Um, was a librarian, an academic librarian, and I happened to get really frustrated with the fact that if you wanted to look up something, many of you people may not remember this. If you went to the card catalog and looked up something, you'd have to know what it was called. You couldn't say lawyer and find what you wanted if it was recorded under attorney. This was true for card catalogs. It was true for, you know, access to the 
through the, liter the journal literature as well. So you had to know what it was that somebody else had named it. I got frustrated with that. Um, and I thought, well, why can't we do something? If I say lawyer and it's attorney, you know, the system should be able to map right to it. Now, you people who aren't used to what it was like in the old days, that may not sound like it's, that it really was like that. But that's what it was. And so dialogue, all the search engines required you to know what they had named something. And if there was a long document, they might only assign up to five words that were descriptors. And you could only find it if you knew those. Hmm. So that's what frustrated me. And like many entrepreneurs, that's what happens. You're frustrated by something and you're motivated to do something about it. And so I started um, focusing on that. I actually took my PhD courses here and went to Cornell to take two, I took two courses with um, Joe Grimes, who was the founder of what's called Discourse Linguistics, which it's beyond you know, syntax, which is structure, and semantics, which is meaning. Discourse is like, you look at a larger piece of text and say, what's the meaning in it? So I did a lot of work with him, and then I, you know, actually I was doing a presentation here on campus after, and this was after I'd been hired as faculty, and I was, and I was teaching NLP to maybe, as I said, five students, and um, I was invited to give a talk here on campus at a place called the Case Center, which was that which supported entrepreneurs really, except they didn't call us entrepreneurs then. <laughs> and um, the head of it said, you know, I think you've really got something, you know, the commercial world could really use this. Why don't you start a company? And I thought, well, okay. My father was an entrepreneur, all my siblings, three brothers and a sister, everyone were entrepreneurs and they would tease me. They'd say, you've got the most education and here you're the poorest. And so <laughs> I decided, you know, you need three brothers to bug you. So I started it, you know, and it was a search engine company. I pitched it to a, uh, an, an investor out of Rochester, and he thought the idea was great. It was how can you search without having to know, this, you know, what words somebody else called it. It was like building, you can think of it as very, very large thesauri. How do you do this automatically? And then when you look at a user's query, how do you extract from that the words that describe it? So he, um, I got funding from him and his, he, he, he ran a company. I get um, funding from them and um, Grant may remember them, these folks as well. And then we, um, you know, as I said, grew it to 50, 60 people at a time right here in the university. Um, we paid rent, we were a company within the university. We were doing quite well. Our first customers were the United States Patent Office and the European Patent Office. All of Europe has one. And um, I presented to them and they were very interested. They started, you, it was like a subscription basis. They could come on and use the search engine and, you know, against their own collection of documents. And what they really liked about it was the fact, when you think about patents, if you, and I have six patents, when you write a patent, Frequently, people will try to disguise what it's really about and use different words, but but the NLP was allowing them, since you didn't have to match on just the one word assigned by an indexer, if it was there in the document any place, you could match on it. 
So those were our first customers. We then started um, the large companies were people then at that time were starting to come around and understand a bit more about what was needed in, in competitive intelligence. That's what it was. It was all for competitive intelligence. So I was doing that as Grant knows for a number of years. And um, what happened is I, funny to say, I kind of got bored with it. Because um, if you have a service, a product, anything, it, you expect it to do just what's next. And at that same time, I was also being funded by the intelligence agencies and was doing what I thought was some very exciting, interesting work. And I could go in my own direction instead of just the next version. And so um, I left the company. A number of people left with me. And we started a research center. Grant worked with us there and um, went on to the agents, you know, my investor tried to sue that I couldn't take the technology. The university stood with me. I took the technology and we um, developed a research center and, you know, provided access to the same, to this technology, starting with the, um, you know, staying with the patent office and then going on. And it was competitive intelligence folks in the large corporations were the ones who were the users. And, um, Again, at the same time, I was doing a lot of work with the um, intelligence agencies. It was the time, part of this time was at 9-11, and um, it, it was important. I thought it was important to help the government in ways that they could. So they had access to a lot of data that um, they were trying to track and see what was going to happen next. And so um, did a lot of work with that, and that's what the center did. Yeah. So... Um, I don't know if you want me to go any further. That's no, the no. end of the end. <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, you know, it's, it's so interesting how these, you know, some of these things that spurred you on early on are, are really still very pertinent today. Right. And, right. and, and this notion of being able to, to search across different concepts and ideas were things that you were working back uh, in the, in those early days and are still actually really interesting challenges for our listeners uh, who are interested in this space. Uh, to go and still tackle, right? Because because we still have a lot of these problems. You know, maybe then why don't we shift gears? You know, on this theme, right? You you, you head up the iSchool, and and the iSchool is in many ways focused on these kinds of of tackling these kinds of problems. So you know, why don't you? Why don't we broaden here a little bit and talk a little bit more about the iSchool? What is it all about and, and what's its mission and, and what kind of education would someone expect to get at the iSchool? Okay, thank you. Glad to talk about it. As anybody who knows me realizes, I'm very, very proud of the iSchool. Um, the iSchools were a relatively new invention. Many came from library science. In the beginning, there were only three iSchools and they bonded together and form the iSchool Caucus. Right now there are 100 iSchools around the world. We used to be just three in the United States, now they're all over um, Europe, Asia, South America, very, very popular. And it was a, it's really like the birth of a field, the information field. Many, in some schools it's part of computer science, and other places it's a standalone program. And so for the school here, um, we're doing very, very well. Uh, we have about um, 1,800 students. They come from 25 different countries, plus 700 online students. So wow. we've been doing online education for 26 years. We were the first to do online. Now we're, um, it's, it's booming 
right now. But anyway, we offer one bachelor's um, for the undergrad program. We admit 100 students a year. And this year, so we admitted 100. This year, we'll be graduating 260. So what happens, and that's very, very symptomatic of the field, students and, you know, people in high school and even their parents have not in the past been realizing that there is an information field. And so they may, um, they may go elsewhere. They may go to computer science. Many of them join us from computer science or from communication. So they hear about us when they're here. They may not start with us as freshmen, but that's how many we will graduate. And many, many more students take minors with us. They'll come out of communication and then realize the job market there is not quite what it is in the IT field. And so they will join us um, as they go along. And that's how we get to that number of graduates from the undergrad program. We have a good number of masters. Um, we started out with information management. We have recently added three new majors in data science. Um, I should say one of those is an undergrad, but at master's, we have a master's in applied data science and a master's in enterprise data systems. And since we um, provide those online, it is many of them, many of those who are in those programs are work, working folks. You don't have to move to Syracuse. You can do this online. You can get your master's in these areas. And many of the corporations, as you know, are really into the, you know, everything is data right now. We used to think of it as information, now it's data. <laughs> but many of them, that's what they're looking for. And so they're very, very successful. I'm proud of our, our online programs because while we were the, you know, we, we've been doing it all those years, the technology has changed so much that now we're, I think we're able to do it. And we know from our evaluations, we have the students, both online students and on-campus students, evaluate the courses. And what I'm very proud of is those students who are, on, are online rate the programs and their learnings as highly as those who are on campus. So I think yeah. kudos to our faculty, because I think they're <laughs> the ones who, they're the ones who make this happen. Yeah, well, I don't know if any. Go ahead. Well, having taken a number of the classes uh, there as well, I, I think I, I probably fall in the camp of I, I did my master's in computer science, but I, I took a, several iSchool classes as well. And, and I look back, those are off, often the foundational courses that, that have propelled my career forward. You know, so talk a little bit, like, who's a, who's a good candidate for, for this? Like, and, and a little bit more on, like, what does a typical student engage with? What are they learning, you know, perhaps compared to a more of a, a computer science department or alongside mm -hmm. a computer science department? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think there's multiple parts of it. They probably learn a little bit more about business than they, mm -hmm. in, in this program than they would, would in a straight computer science. We find that, um, you know, because there's also the whole management side. And, if, and, and as you would know this, when you're in computer science, it really is the, the technology and the data, and that's all they focus on. And what we would focus on is more that, plus what's the purpose? Why are people doing this? Mm -hmm. Are, the, are the, those who are using what they're creating um, content with it? Is it successful? How do, you, you know, how do you measure that? And how do you work with people who, who need the information? These are 
typically you're supporting individuals who have serious need for the information, but don't necessarily know how to access it themselves. So um, what we cover, I mean, it's a combination. There is computer science. They're all programmers. They all learn how to program, you know, now think it's so much easier than the old days. I remember when I built my first search engine, oh my goodness, you know, yeah. every line of code I wrote myself, there was nothing prepared that I could just, you know, link up with. But they, um, what they take is, they may take some programming if they don't already have it. Um, a lot of the focus is on data analysis. So it's if there is, depending upon what the data looks like, is it all textual, is it numeric, how many different sources does it come from, how do you merge it, how do you keep it clean, and then for different users, how do you create something such that no matter what the user's need is, they can access it. And it could be different from somebody else's need, but they can access it as well. And so there is the user side of it focused on, you know, how, how do you make it interpretable, understandable? How do you make it, you know, so the, how do you facilitate um, users? We're very user focused. I, Grant might remember that. We always focus on the user, not just on the back end of it, which sometimes, all kudos to computer science, typically they focus on the back end of it. And what the, what, our students do is focus on the, the customer. So our students have very, very well, very, very good placement. They all get great jobs, best, highest paying jobs on of any school on campus. They all get great jobs. Many of them are in the large companies, but what they're doing is helping the uh, folks in that company accomplish their jobs. And it's not just, you know, run a program for the outcome. It's right. how does that outcome assist you know, a user, whether it's somebody in the company or it's one of their clients. So it, it sounds a lot like, you know, these types of roles are, these are people who are going to be really good at things like product management. They're going to be really good at being that, uh, I like to think of them as that liaison between the tech side yeah. and the business side. And and we've actually had several guests on development or here already who, who fit into that market. So in with the new data science, of course, that's a hot mm -hmm. field as well. So it sounds like the iSchool is really well positioned to to help people get into this field without necessarily feeling like they have to be a hardcore right. uh, uh, back-end programmer who's who's stuck in the weeds all the time. Right? Yeah, yeah, I think you're 100% right there. And um, those who join us and do well in the program are frequently those who um, are, as we talk about it, is you got to be user-centered. You know, how is it? Who is it you're supporting? Um, so that they can accomplish their goal and are there things that need to be changed and also how what's the analytics that someone wants out of it it's so impressive yeah um, we do a lot of data analysis for corporations now the school itself they have an amazing amazing board of advisors and they, they work with us they're the big companies who want to hire the students but they will present and share with the students real world um, projects that they're on so that the students get to uh, to experiment with that. Um, and they do it as a, in their course. We, we've been doing a lot of work with the city of Syracuse, all their data. Um, and it's very real world is what the students will tell you. And I think this is why our placement rate is so high is because when they interview with a company, the company realizes that, oh, 
It's not just they know the algorithms or the, um, the programming to accomplish this. They know how it fits into what we're doing as an organization. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know uh, in my own personal career, once I kind of realized, hey, it's more about the user and the, and the customer and those kinds of things, you know, that's when, when things really started to click. I want to shift gears here a little bit. And, you know, you know I've, I've known you a good long time. And one of the things that has always struck me watching you is whether you're in an academic setting or a commercial setting or whatever, there's this underlying entrepreneurial spirit that's just moving into everything you do. And, and, you know, you've, you've incorporated that into bringing the university or at least your school into the digital age of online learning, you know, talk a little bit about some of the, the lessons you've learned or, or derived from incorporating that entrepreneurial spirit and kind of into the everyday fabric of your life. Hmm. So I'm a big believer in trust yourself. If you think it's a good idea, follow it. If you do that a couple of times and you find out, oh, it really wasn't such a good idea, then partner with somebody who knows how to recognize a, a good idea. As I said, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, very, very successful. Um, and I learned from them, I think, how to, how to think and evaluate opportunities. Um, we started out very, very poor. Um, my father bought a storefront that sold janitor supplies. He early on recognized that it was service, not product. He then turned it into a service company, grew it. It was the first one in the United States. He got written up a lot. They ended up doing the Olympics. You know, can you imagine doing janitorial service for the Olympics? And he ended up doing all the food for them as well. He did it for GE worldwide. And so it was like watching this and watch, and he, he was very open and shared with us. Our Sundays were spent coloring um, sales charts for his salespeople. <laughs> and, and you watch it. I mean, we were poor. We had no car. My father walked to and from work every day at the beginning. And you watch something like that. And I think it does two things. It makes you be a risk taker and trust what you, what you believe is what should be done. And, you know, you... It, and, and you and you learn to work very hard and, yeah. and follow it and trust it. And then I think in addition to that, one of the most important things is to have people around you who will not be afraid to step up and say, I think you're wrong on this one. And to, to be in an environment, support an environment where people can do that versus um, just say yes. You don't want them to just agree with you. It's like, and I think, we do a lot of visits, as you know. We do these road trips with the students. I'm just back from San Francisco where we had 20 students with us for a whole week. They do it as a course. They visit five four or five companies a day, all the big companies. You know, we're on a bus. We go from place to place. The um, leaders of these companies, you know, we've been to Microsoft last year. Um, CFO spoke with the students for like a couple of hours. The students learn what it's like. And I think that's what's really important to understand, not just who you are and what your ideas are, but how is it that you can form or, or be part of an organization in which everyone learns to listen. And listen to the customers, listen to your competitors, listen to everyone who's in your organization because, you know, it's never that you're the only one who, you know, has the answer. 
So I think I may have strayed. I don't know if I yeah, answered what you were Perfect. I mean, you know, it, it's, it, that's perfect. I mean, I think that early notion of hard work and I can just imagine, you know, all the kids gathered around the table, coloring and sales yep. charts, you know, that yep. back before the days of uh, filling, you know, pointing and clicking in, in PowerPoint. Right. Um, you, you know, a lot of that really resonates, uh, you know, so like speaking of that, you know, one of the questions I like to uh, ask all my guests here is, you know, if you reflect back a little bit, uh, you know, what's something that, uh, you know, Liz Liddy just right out of college or just out of mm -hmm. that PhD program might be most surprised to learn happened, you know, in the course of your career? I wasn't thinking corporately at all. You know, when I finished my PhD, um, I had three kids I was raising and um, I thought I might have to leave university and move someplace. And what do you do with you know, three kids who are in high school and don't want to move. So it's like, I think it was, I think I'm surprised that I'm still here. <laughs> I think that's what was surprised me. I, I thought I was going to have to leave because that's typically what happens when you finish a PhD program. Most universities don't necessarily hire their own or they didn't used to. I think they're doing more of it now. So I think that's what would actually surprise me the, the, the most and that I'm Dean. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you even did a, a stint as the interim uh, vice chancellor, right? You know, right. where all of a sudden now it's like, not just are you worried about your whole your school, you're, you're worried about all the schools. Right, right. Is, is that something typically you see in, in academia is, is no. kind of moving up the <laughs> chain there? What was that experience like for you? Well, I'll tell you that kind of how it happened. The current provost, who I was really very good friends with, was... Um, going to be leaving and um, unannounced. And the chancellor called me one day and said, you know, would you come over and have lunch with me? And I said, I'm in the middle of a meeting. <laughs> and he said, I'll buy you lunch. I said, okay. So I went over and he said he'd like me to be the interim provost vice chancellor. So it, within a university, the highest position obviously is the chancellor. And then the one below that is this, the um, vice chancellor, for academics and provost, it's a split title. And um, he kept talking about it, and I don't think I was even listening because I couldn't quite believe that this was what he was saying. So, um, and he said, he says, okay, he says, get back to me in a couple of days, let me know what you think. I didn't even have any questions because I was just so shocked. I'd never talked talk about it. And, and so I didn't know what to do. I didn't talk to anybody here in my school. What I did, I called somebody, um, Grant knows my son John who was in the company he was the COO of the company and he um, now leads all the entrepreneurship at the university but he was in he was in Spain and I called him and I said this is what happened what do I do we talked a long time very long time and what he said that really mattered to me was he said you know because I kept saying how much I love the iSchool I don't want to leave the iSchool I really love the iSchool and what he said which is very true I believe that if I didn't say yes to this, to the chancellor, I wouldn't be able to accomplish anything else for the iSchool for which I needed approval. Uh, yeah. And, and I, think he was, he, I think he was very right. The chancellor and I are great friends and I think it went well. I did it for a year and a half. And during that time, I hired deans of six other colleges. There's 11 colleges here at Syracuse and I hired new deans for wow. six of those. 
So it was, yeah, sometimes I'll sit at a meeting with my, now my fellow deans and I'm thinking, yeah, I hired you, I hired you, I hired you. <laughs> so yeah, no, it was, I was glad I did it. I, and I was very eager. I told him pretty early on, I was coming back to the iSchool, <clears throat> didn't want to stay in that position. But no, I learned a whole lot. I learned what yeah. works well for school, what doesn't work well. So, um, and I, I was really honored. It was an honor to be asked and to do it. Well, and there's two uh, themes in there that I think are really near and dear to my heart and to this show. And, and the first one is, you know, you, you touched on this notion of always be learning, right, and, and have an open mind. And I think that's been something throughout your career. The other one, though, is you, you built a strong relationship with this person. So perhaps, you know, spend a little bit of time talking about some of the key relationships over the course of your career oh, wow. and, and the importance of them. Okay. Um, probably one of the most important was um, Jeff Katzer. Um, Grant wouldn't be surprised to hear his name. He was head of the PhD program when I was a PhD student. Um, he taught the stats course, uh, which was a two semester tough, 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 tough course. Yep. <laughs> At that time, I was um, working full time as an li academic librarian, and um, I took the course because I would take interns from the school and then I'd get free tuition to take courses. So I took that and halfway through the first, I said, I went to the dean, asked for an appointment, met with the dean and asked if they would accept a part-time student. They said, no, we don't accept part-time students. So anyway, I took the second half of that, of the um, stats course. Um, I was fortunate in that I had the highest grade in both the first and the second section session. So it was, um, you know, out of 50, 60 students, they called me and invited me to join the PhD program. And that was, and it was through Jeff Katzer. He supported me throughout the whole thing. And I think it's just a great lesson to like work hard, no matter whether you can count on um, a benefit coming from it, but just work really, I worked really hard on those stats courses. Mm. And, and Jeff, he really was my, he supported me. Um, he was my, became my advisor. I immediately asked him to be my advisor. Um, when I wanted to, when I started talking about what I wanted to do for my dissertation, nobody knew about natural language processing. He didn't know anything about it. And I said, well, I'm going to go to Cornell and take these courses because they are teaching it. And um, he says, well, I'll learn it if you, you know, if you want to do it. And which is unusual. Usually people want to be the advisor for a, a topic area that they know and that they themselves and their research will benefit from. He wasn't like that. He, free, he just really let me go and do that, which I wanted to. Wow. And then, um, so he was very, very influential, very influential. The other thing, when I was finishing my PhD and I didn't know what I was going to do and I have to move and um, I happened to win three awards on my dissertation, international or national awards. And so he hired me as a, as a faculty member, which was exactly what I wanted. And so that was great. He was very, very good. He was very bright. He was very gentle, um, just amazing. Unfortunately, he died very early of cancer. Yeah. So he was, he was a great guy. I still think of him all the time. We have, the, we have all our meetings in the cancer room. And so he had the most influence on me. And I think a lot of it was because he would just – he didn't have to be the expert in it in order to work with you on it. You know, he would grow with you and um, just be very, very supportive. And then the other one was another, um, Ray Vondran, who was dean of the iSchool. 
and he was dean when I was when I had the company. Um, he was really again he was forward looking, and he was very supportive of um, kind of the great spirit of the school. In our school, which has grown quite a bit, we are still what Ray always wanted: a faculty of one. So there's no departments. And I know now from watching all the other schools on campus that have departments, it really frequently it causes um, dissension, you know, vying for things. And he kept us, you know, we're, we're a faculty of one. And we, while we've grown tremendously, we still call ourselves and we act as a faculty of one. And he had a true, he had a real influence on me in terms of how you um, manage an organization. Also, when I left the company and wanted to be, I was, I was a professor through all the time I had the company, but I wanted to come back full time into the, into the, into the college. And I, I remember meeting with him on a Sunday and talking to him about it. And he, you know, did everything he needed to, to go above and get approval and permission. And so I left the company and about five, six folks, probably you, Grant, came with me and um, got me space to have a research center. I started a research center and we continued right on with many of the contracts we had, um, particularly with the government agencies. And so he was just, you know, I think he was a risk taker. I really like risk takers. Yeah. And he, he had faith, he had trust, and he took, he took a risk on me. So unfortunately he died prematurely as well. So he was Dean and that's how, and um, I became interim Dean. And um, then I didn't really, then they had an open search for a dean and I didn't really want to get into it. Um, it just felt so bad because Ray had died. And then anyway, at the last day that you could put your name in, I put my name in. <laughs> and then I ended up dean. 10 years later, here I am. You, you caught the bus or the car, as they uh, proverbially say. Yeah, no, I, and Liz, those are really nice tributes to uh, uh, your mentors as well. I mean, I think... You know, if nothing else, it's those kind of relationships that are the key to any career. I want to hit on something, too, here. It just occurred to me, you know, underneath everything, you've got kind of a couple of themes running. There's this entrepreneurial spirit. There's this risk taking. But there's just a whole lot of hard work because it just occurred to me that you said you were doing your Ph.D. at Syracuse University. You were raising three kids and you were driving to Cornell, which is an hour and 20 minutes <laughs> in the winter of upstate New York yeah. to, to take a class that you thought was important. That's amazing. And I think that's one of the things that under, uh, has always struck me about you is this kind of tireless effort uh, combined with thoughtful thoughtfulness around uh, what you want to go after. Well, thank Let's shift gears a little bit and, and uh, get you back to your day. And, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about kind of, you know, you're in, you're in the catbird seat around being the dean of a school and obviously talk a lot of, with professors in technology and things like that. And, and, you know, entrepreneurs often talk a lot about disruption. And as cliche as that term is, it, it seems to really apply to your world these days as well, because there's so many companies and universities offering online degrees and certificates and all the cart courses. What do you see as some of the next big challenges in this space? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think it's going to continue to be online. Um, I, I, something I've said for a long time, I think the future of higher ed is going to be the un 
undergraduates will you know be residential at colleges and I think most parents believe yes it'll help their child grow up send them away for four years and I think the students want it I think it's good for so all undergrad I think is going to be online I also think in the future the master's program the graduate programs on, on campus is going to be for international students we have a good maybe 70% of our on-campus master's students are international in the same way that um, for the undergrads their families want them to be on campus and learn from that environment it'll continue that way for international students They're, they and their families want them to have the experience of being in the United States say for two years to get their master's but I think what we're going to see is most of the um, US students master's level US students are going to be online it's like they want a particular area that, and I think more of them won't go into a graduate program right out of an undergrad program. Many of them will already get jobs and then realize, well, there's more I need to learn, and then they will do that online. In addition to doing online in order to get a master's degree, I think there is more um, recognition that perhaps some of the shorter programs um it, online you don't have to get the full masters you know so what do you learn from those you don't have to take you know it used to be you had to commit to a whole masters what we offer now is you can take courses you can take short courses long courses they're online they're very very focused on specific areas um, and i think that's what a good number of of individuals will be doing some will still go you know on campus they want that whole experience but a good number of them, particularly those where the companies are um, paying for, they have a whole lot of employees and they need more in data science, say, as one area. So what they will do is support those students. Um, we're a private school, so our tuition reflects that. So for those students to get their master's or to get some of the courses towards a master's, um, I think many of the corporations will be paying. But that's what we'll see. We'll see. Uh, an undergrad, all on campus, very few. We, we have some, we do offer some on, online courses, particularly for students trying to catch up. But for the masters, mainly on campus will be international. Yeah. And the rest will be from wherever they live. Our, and I think, and I think that that's really the future. And I think more of it's gonna be shorter courses. Yeah, that makes so, sense. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of people when it comes to grad school, they don't always think that it's even an option that you could get your employer to pay for. And yet a, a lot of companies have programs that sponsor graduate programs. So, you know, right. somebody's, uh, I, I personally did uh, uh, my master's part-time and my employer paid for it. It's, it's a great way to continue your education without having to forego that salary that uh, perhaps right. supporting a family or, or, a certain way of life that you're used to. So, yeah, I think a lot of good insights in there, Liz, thanks. And I think the technology has improved so for online. Yeah. We do ours through a, a company called To You, which is now a 2,000 person company, which provides much of the online instruction for uh, colleges all over the United States and now internationally. So they have the technology, they work with you. Um, they work with you in the development of it. Their technology, the online technology is just it's really impressive. Typically, there's an hour and a half lecture 
um, a week plus then discussions. And when you're in a discussion group, it's very much like you're on um, Hollywood Squares, you know, you're seeing all the 24 people in the screen and you just have conversation. And the faculty member um, or the adjunct who is leading the discussion, that's what you do. And the students, the evaluations of the courses for the online students are as good as those on campus, which is the one criteria I keep watching. If it ever becomes less, it's not as good, then you know we have to really rethink it. Interesting, yeah, that's very cool. Kind of final couple of questions here, Liz, uh, and then we'll wrap up and, and uh, let you get on with your day here. You know, so you, you recently announced you're retiring and uh, it's, it's hard to imagine a Syracuse University without you. I'm, I'm pretty sure you bleed orange. And for our <laughs> listeners who uh, I don't know, that's obviously Syracuse's color colors yeah. there. You know, Reflecting back on on this career that you've had, what do you see as the things you most want to be remembered by in your time there? Um, Supporting good students, enabling students to get where they want to be. There's nothing better like when we were just in San Francisco, you know, with the students and visiting, you know, the companies. Um, It's like there's always alums there and the alums are so supportive of the current students. But I mean, it's it's like and you can tell that they're really happy in what they're doing and they're turning around and they're giving back and they're supporting the students, they're supporting the school. And I think that is, I mean, I would like their students' education with us to be on many dimensions, a very key, key part of their life. It's almost like we're part of their family. And it's not that, but they, you can tell when you watch them, when they meet with you, that they, they feel like that and a lot of that is because we are um, you know a relatively small school but a very very warm school Um, the students will tell you this when they talk about it they're shocked that they can just walk in and talk with you and the doors are open and I think that's I think education is a big part of most people's lives and I'd like it to be that they have a very you know positive memory of that as well I also feel highly responsible to parents um, for our undergrads who are paying the tuition. Um, we're a private university. It's a, high ex- it's a high tuition. But I feel very, very responsible to them that we will educate their son or daughter so that they get a good job, yeah. well-paying job. And, um, you know, when I, I say, as I said, we've got, the, you know, we have the highest, well, we have the highest placement rate. You know, it's like 96% of them have a job by graduation day. And they have the highest paying salary as a, you know, across the school of any school on campus. And wow. it's just, it, and many of them start these jobs when they're sophomores and juniors, they do summers with them. And, and then they, they, you know, walk away from the company, they've got a signed um, employment agreement and they've gotten a signing bonus. And so I feel that responsibility to the, it's very strong um, responsibility to, to the parents. And yeah. so, uh, I don't know what I'll, I think you asked me what I'll miss. <laughs> and yeah, I that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, no, I mean, I, I, I really, I, I, I appreciate the faculty, the staff, we got wonderful, wonderful folks, but it's like, you know, you watch a student, whether they're undergrad and you watch them for four years and you just see them emerge and develop. And it's just, it's so heartwarming. Yeah. You just really feel like you've done something. No, that's fantastic. And so maybe then one final question, which is, you know, like, 
wrap it all up and kind of what's what's your best advice for somebody who who uh, sits in, in, and is listening to this and is like, oh, you know, I think this academic uh, route is in technology is something I want to do. Uh, what's your best advice for them? So th this is students or? I just, um, you know, somebody, you know, a lot of what I'm targeting with this show is people who are coming into tech. They're not really sure what they want to do. Oh. Uh, you know, like <laughs> yeah. somebody building a career in tech from, from your viewpoint, you know, what's some really good advice that uh, you can kind of wrap it, wrap it all up and put a bow on with? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, explore. It's no longer, as I said, that you've got to sign up for a whole master's degree you can take some courses you know I know lots of you folks are already taking the free courses online um, but just you know start you can work towards a degree and if you I, I think it's great to try things you don't know many people who end up quite technical had no sense that they were technical until they start taking some of the courses and nowadays it's much easier than it used to be where you had to write every single line of code yourself now it's like you know what you want to accomplish and there's you know programs and technology that you can use so I just encourage people as I said you don't have to invest in a whole you know degree you can right. try things and then try things try a number of things and then you can decide um, and then if you're working I would say go to your boss and tell them what you're doing and they probably will pay for it for you because they're so eager to be able to hire them but yeah. I think it's just keep growing you know keep learning keep doing you know to keep doing new things and so I think that's good I still I encourage entrepreneurs I'm very supportive we have a great program here on campus we've got our student entrepreneurs I think the last count was they've made you know 36 million in investment in their companies they've spin out and they do very very good but they took a risk and they were um, they became entrepreneurs but you know if you have a good idea you know, find a program that supports entrepreneurs. I'm sure most cities, they have them now. But just try it, you know, get to work with others. Typically, you don't have all the skills yourself. You need partners. So yeah. I think it's like, um, I think it's like we were saying before, I think it's just, you know, take a risk. You know, if you like it, try it. Yeah. And, and, and you'll find out. And if you never try it, you won't know. Yeah. No, that's that's so true. And, and Liz, I mean, so many bits of sage advice. I, I want to thank you for, for taking the time out of your day to, to join me on the show. Uh, you know, one other thing I would just add on, and I think you hit on it with uh, uh, both your reference to Jeff Katzer there and, and uh, Dean Bondran, and is, you know, find yourself a good mentor. And to that end, right. you know, Liz, uh, you've been one of mine over the years and, and very much appreciate it and wish you all the best of luck in retirement. Thank you. And the other thing I would say, if people are going to follow the entrepreneurial um, path, <clears throat> there's many associations. I'm on two boards, one here in Syracuse and one in Dublin. Um, and what it is, is there are places that will help you. You don't have to do it all alone. And, you know, if you're in school, you know, there's folks there. But if you're out, there are organizations. And most entre current entrepreneurs are eager to support and help upcoming up-and-coming entrepreneurs so definitely. just reach out to them definitely uh, fantastic advice there liz uh, again thank you so much for joining me on the show today oh i'm glad to, to meet up with you again although i i think we ran into each other in um london one time <laughs> <laughs> the other thing i would say is i can still remember where you sat at when you're in my nlp <laughs> class i can picture you 
you were the row next to the boards and you were in the second seat. Hopefully I didn't cause you too much trouble. I don't no, think no, I did. No, that. I, was pleased to have you there. I was always pleased when we hit computer science students in the class. It was a, it was a great class and, and laid the foundation for, for much of uh, my career. So yeah, again, much appreciated, Liz. All right. I think uh, I enjoyed it. Thank you.